This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 1st, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Executive Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, we're now seeing real stress on the healthcare system in the United States owing to COVID-19. It's already happening in places like Seattle and New York City, and it's spreading to many other areas where caseloads are increasing dramatically. But what have we learned from those earliest hotspots, Seattle, for example? Well, let me start by saying that some of what we're doing is relearning. This is what happened in China, and we're seeing the same sort of dynamics of infection that occurred early on in Wuhan. Of course, this is happening in a very different healthcare system, and so there are unique experiences. And we've just heard in detail about experiences out in Seattle. And I think that we have to remember that what we're seeing today are interventions that occurred two weeks ago. So that the spread in many of the cities across the U.S. is already underway that will unfortunately see the consequences shortly. And as Eric said, what we've learned in Seattle should help prepare us in our response. And we need to do the responses now so we can have the impact two weeks from now. In some ways, Seattle presented a unique situation because one of the early introduction into nursing home facilities really gave a different dimension to that with very high mortality rates among the residents of nursing homes and unfortunately spread from one nursing home to other facilities. Eric, I think that point is really important because what occurred in Seattle was As best as we know, the initial introduction into this country, or at least very early onset infection and community transmission. And in fact, as best as we can tell, the community transmission was still emerging. So what we see in the healthcare facilities, we're able to understand transmission dynamics in the healthcare facilities and between them, which hopefully can provide some insight into how to block chains of transmission in those very vulnerable environments. For me, Lindsay, one of the striking observations was the attack rate was very high in these congregate settings. That's not a shock. After all, when you co-house people, you get a lot of infection, particularly with respiratory viruses. But there were a very large number of residents who are, after all, in separate rooms rather than the big dormitory settings that we saw in China getting infected. And I think that is a bit of a red flag for us. And as part of that, Eric, you're absolutely right. The hundred or so nursing home residents who were infected in, in one report, but also the healthcare workers, which may well be an important observation both to better protect our healthcare workers and also to protect the patients they're caring for. And then the trafficking of our elderly residents between facilities and the healthcare workers between facilities, which potentially spreads this virus more broadly, rapidly. And I think these observations are critical ones to pay attention to so that we can prevent this from happening in other settings, uh, Seattle and across the country. Because once it gets into a senior citizen center, the likelihood of spreading widely, unfortunately, is very high. And then looking at New York City, which is a striking example of shortage of resources. In New York, they have healthcare workers that have limited personal protective equipment and apparently are close to running out of standard ventilators. So what does that portend for the rest of the country? So I think some of what's going on in New York is illustrated by what we've learned in Seattle already and prior to that in China. 
it's certainly true that a lot of people need mechanical ventilation, but not only do they require it, but they require it for extended periods of time. The recovery from severe disease tends to be very slow. Therefore, that represents an even greater strain on the resources. Add to that the number of healthcare workers who are likely to be infected because of the lack of PPE in places like New York. That's going to be an additional drain on the system where we have more sick people and fewer people to care for them. I mean, I think, Steve, looking at that question, New York has widespread transmission. And so that we have to look at a little bit differently than other parts of the country where there isn't yet widespread transmission. And as Eric mentions, I think that the Seattle experience, unfortunately, is all too consistent with other experiences such as in Milan. And what we learn from that is that in a nursing home, the virus spreads rapidly throughout the population. The older individuals are vulnerable to more severe illness, and that occurs with half of them being hospitalized. And of those hospitalized, the majority wind up requiring intensive care, and a third of them to date have died, at least in this one report. And that speaks to the tremendous stress on the healthcare system that will be required when this virus gets into vulnerable populations. Not that all of us aren't at risk, I think we all are at risk, but we know certain groups of individuals are at extremely high risk of complications that will then lead to substantial requirement of healthcare services, particularly ICU and ventilator needs, which leads to an important strategy consideration, which is how do we prevent the virus from getting into the populations at highest risk for the severe complications and spread that out over time so the healthcare system can absorb the consequences of that occurring. And I think that's really important, even more important, that that be considered across the country than just in any one city like New York. New York needs to consider it, but I would strongly advise all the other jurisdictions to consider it before it becomes a problem and leads to overwhelming healthcare demands. So in fact, the federal government has extended many of the limits that have been placed on people and businesses, and they've extended it based on models that suggest that it's going to take much longer to control the outbreak than had originally been thought. What's happening that could help that? There's an interesting piece we've published today from Harvey Feinberg, which makes an argument for interventions that could be both very dramatic, but could end up shortening the course of disease. There are several parts to that. Many of them are things that we are already doing, including social distancing. But others are further steps that one could take to try to limit the spread of disease. I'm going to highlight a couple of them and let Lindsay comment as well. One of them has to do with serology. If we had a reliable way of determining who was protected against disease, it could have a dramatic impact on the outbreak. Having a pool of people who are protected would allow new healthcare workers and, in fact, employees of any sorts of organizations to go back to work. Now, there are still substantial technical and logistical challenges to implementing something like that. I know, Lindsay, you've seen some work on serology. It seems like it's not quite mature yet. What do you think? Eric, I think that's a very important consideration. And as serology gets stood up, 
we need to understand transmission dynamics, particularly those who may not have presented to the healthcare system for diagnosis, so we really understand the epidemiology. And then you allude to the point about protection, which is if I get infected and recover, am I resistant to future infection? Many of us think that's likely to be true, given the biology of this virus and the nature of the immunity that's engendered. However, that still will require some study to affirm that that's true. If so, that provides a dramatic new resource that may become available that the public health authorities will have to sort out how best to deploy and the hospitals can potentially leverage. So it is something hopeful in the future that may decrease some of the stress on the healthcare system once the science around it has been clarified. I think in addition, there are other tools that could come into play. People are currently testing a number of antiviral drugs, and so far we don't have extremely encouraging results to look at, but there are a lot of candidates out there, and they are being evaluated now. Some of these could treat very severe disease and maybe decrease the mortality rate, which would be great. But from the standpoint of controlling the infection, treatments that decrease transmission, that decrease viral shedding, particularly in people who aren't that sick, could have a very large impact. Now, of course, we don't know if such a drug exists, and there, again, are logistical challenges. If there is such a drug, can we make it in large enough quantities to get to people? Can we identify the people who should be getting it? And is it deliverable in a way, for example, an oral drug that could be taken by large numbers of people? And finally, is it safe to give it to a very, very large population? But if such a thing existed, it would provide a great tool to help control disease. I mean, I think that you raise an important set of concepts, Eric. There is treatment. And normally when we think of treatment, we think of those who are sick, potentially progressing to severe illness, ICU, and potentially mortality, and how do we avert that? And a lot of effort is going on in that space, and that's critically important. But the other point which you raise, Eric, which I think we often don't think about, is where could treatment fit into the general public health response? One is social distancing. So when I'm sick, I don't infect you. And that is the social distancing where testing and you know, quarantine mitigation isolation has to be considered. But the other piece which you raise, Eric, is could we actually lead to viral resolution more quickly in general? And whether or not that protects against progression to disease, which logically may occur, although would require some study, it may well decrease viral shedding more broadly, which hopefully would decrease transmission as well and could be a public health tool if such an agent emerged. You've raised the issue of social distancing, and that's something that we can do today. How has that played out? What do you see as the value of social distancing, and how has that been successful, if it has, in controlling the spread of the outbreak? The concept of flattening the curve is an important one, but I think it's important to recognize the limitations of that idea. On one hand, decreasing the total number of cases at any given time is extremely important because it makes healthcare resources far more available than if there's a big surge all at once. But it also means that there's a large susceptible population still out there, and it prolongs any sort of course of the entire epidemic. So it's important, in fact, I think vital, but it's not a cure-all for what's going on. I think that there are several elements that have to be added to social distancing. One of those is something that Lindsay already alluded to, 
while we were talking about serology, a test which doesn't really exist or is not yet available in a way that's useful, we certainly have a test for active disease, which is pretty good, and it is not being widely deployed still. So it's much, much better than it was before. But there still are a limited number of tests, and those are being prioritized to test people who are ill. We still don't have a very good surveillance system. And so that would help us tremendously in understanding what sorts of strategies we can deploy within social distancing that will help control disease. I mean, I think, Eric, you make the point that testing is very important to know who's infected and therefore who's at risk of spreading. And currently, since testing still remains limited and not available to scale for what the public health response needs, we are targeting and prioritizing. Ideally, we would have testing that we could use as public health authorities would like to use unbridled, meaning we fully test, identify, isolate, and block transmission chains in the community. Until we have the capacity to do that, we are going to be relegated to targeting. One of the important groups that I think needs to be targeted, and this gets to the issue of flattening the curve, there's flattening the curve for the population at large, which is part of what social distancing is and part of what community testing would be. And I think that's very important for the reasons stated. But there's also flattening the curve for those who are most vulnerable. And how to think about that, again, I'll get back to the senior centers. Should we prioritize those environments that if they become infected, will likely be the highest consumers of our medical resources and ventilators? And do we think about flattening the curve, especially in the most vulnerable patient groups? Because I think that will do the most, in my view, to decrease the stress on our hospitals over the next month or two, given the nature of who is more likely to develop severe illness and need respiratory support. Steve, I want to get back to part of your question that neither of us addressed, which is, is it working? And there are news reports out there that there have been some decreases in disease and decreases in febrile syndromes that are going on. It basically has to work, so it's not shocking that it should. The question, I think, is going to be the magnitude of the response, and that's going to take a little while longer to figure out. Yeah, as I said before, we are learning today what our interventions two weeks ago did. And so we have to be able to be smart enough to know that what I do today, I don't see the impact today uh, to incorporate that into our planning. In addition to extending some of these limits, the government has also relaxed some regulations, made it potentially easier for hospitals to operate. HIPAA is being suspended in some cases. On a state level, scope of practice is changing in some places. How do you see all of that affecting this? This is all an experiment. And so we'll have to see ultimately how big an impact all of those interventions have. Some of them are simply essential. If we're going to call back practitioners who have retired or given up their license, we have to change our licensing requirements. There's no way around that. I think one of the things that has not come up but is going to be very important is as we move staff around between facilities and open up new facilities like the Javits Center in New York or any other place like that, credentialing is a critical part. And apart from the legal framework, hospitals and insurers are going to have to think about how to allow providers to provide care. Uh, some interventions have been much more political than effective, but I think a lot of what we're seeing is really essential to control. 
Steve and Eric, it is an experiment, but in reality, we are responding to a crisis and none of us like the choices we have to make, including how we set up healthcare facilities, field hospitals, and bring back staff to be able to staff. You know, one is to have the ventilators and another is to have the staff who can actually run and manage them. And so in this crisis, we must make the best choices possible to have the resources necessary to respond. Hopefully they won't be needed, but unfortunately, this epidemic is playing out all too similarly across jurisdictions around the world. So we have to be prepared and build these structures or these permissive allowances to enable us to care for the ill. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.